Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Happiness Journey with Dr. Dan podcast, where every journey is worth living. My name is Dr. Dan, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm a bilingual cognitive behavior psychotherapist specializing in anger management issues, both court-appointed and private, marriage counseling using the EFT method, dissociative disorders, narcissistic personality disorders, depression, anxiety, dream analysis, and also provide life, business, and retirement coaching support. I provide individual one-on-one session in English and in French, and also do group settings. If you need any assistance, reach out to DMV Therapy and Coaching Services at 301-325-1550, and our website can be found at lifecoachdenamzalag.com. Today, I'm very excited to have to our fourth episode of Season 9, a very special guest and author, Ruth Wotkowitz. And just like every of my past episodes, I will leave it up to the guests to properly introduce themselves as no one can do a better job. Ruth, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. I have always been a writer. Writing is just in me. Uh, It's just something even from the time I was little, I knew no matter what else I was going to have to do in my life, I was going to be a writer. And I was, I mean, I worked, I was um, an English teacher in high schools and colleges. I did home tutoring. I did edit some editing. I was a freelance writer. I was a staff writer on a paper, um, a, a monthly paper in Princeton. Um, so I did a lot of things that gave me a lot of experience, but I always had a book in me. And I always had a story that I wanted to tell, that I wanted to get out there. And it was the story of a character, of a troubled character. In fact, it was always there, but it kind of came out. I took a course when I was home with little kids in New Jersey. Um, It was a writing course. And I said, oh, you know, let me give it a try. I need some inspiration. And the writer um, wrote the kind of books that I am not interested in. So I wasn't sure I would respond. She wrote, you know, romances. But she came up with a a prompt that actually sounds very hokey, but it worked for me. She said, imagine you're in a lake and you're going fishing and you throw in the line and you pull out a fish and you look at the fish and you go, I don't like that fish. You put it back and you keep doing that until you you get a fish that you say, yeah, you know, this is my fish. (laughs) Well, my first fish was a good one. Um, It was a picture of a troubled young woman. I knew right away she would be someone who is presenting one front to the world, but concealing her true uh, pain and her true demons. And she was she would be edging closer and closer to mental breakdown. I knew immediately she would be a child of Holocaust survivors. This is my own experience as I am. And um, I just it just sort of all came together that this is a character that can show people what it's like to live a double life Mm -hmm. and a a story and a person that can kind of get get the message across that first of all, you're not alone. And second of all, you can't hide this forever. It's like a pot with boiling water and eventually the lid is gonna pop off. You're gonna explode. You can't keep up like that. So all this I knew right away. So when that fish came in the line, um, it was already in me. And I just said, that's it. You know, I'm going to write this book. And it was years. It was years in the writing, years of revising, years of getting it workshops. In the middle of all this, I had another brainstorm of another book completely 
um, a totally a love story, a completely different, um, a love story gone bad. Um, I wrote that book. I actually got an agent for that book who was in love with it and said, this is going to sell big. Okay. Three years, she couldn't sell it. She oh, said, okay. it, it's not, you know, it is, it doesn't fit neatly into a category because the ending was not a happy ending. They don't like that. Oh, and I wasn't going to change it. I said, that was the whole point of it. Uh, she said, what else do you have? I showed her the beginning of my book, Escaping the Whale. She mm -hmm. said, there's no category for this. It's not going to sell. I'm not going to take it. So we parted ways. Mm -hmm. um, that's the problem really in the business. You know, they're looking for a category. What shelf would it be on? Um, some of the publishing houses won't even take a book before they run it by the sales team to okay. just see what, you know, um, can you sell this? How would you sell this? What shelf would it be on? Uh, I never cared about that. It just wasn't me. So um, what happened was I just wrote the book. I was very involved in it. And I left the other one. I let it go, even though I was very involved with that too. And uh, again, I tried to sell it. I tried to do, you know, agents and with, you know, press, most small presses, no takers. I said, you know what? It doesn't matter because I got it out. I was glad of that. Mm -hmm. Then two things actually changed for me. Um, first of all, we moved from New Jersey to Arizona mm -hmm. and I joined the Phoenix Holocaust Association mm -hmm. and I met a lot of other um, children of survivors. We're called 2Gs, second generation. Mm -hmm. And um, some of them had written memoirs of their parents' experiences hardly anybody had written fiction. That's the thing. My thing was fiction. It just isn't a big field, that kind of thing. There are a few things here and there, but it's mostly the memoirs. I'm not into memoirs. And, you know, my family story was already written up by my cousin and my sister. We're done with that. Um, and I, I prefer fiction for to read as well as to write. Anyway, um, so I just felt like meeting these people. I said, you know, maybe they were wrong. Maybe there is a market. Maybe there are people who would be interested in this. Maybe it's not a million people, but maybe there are some people. So that sort of gave me the idea. And I started working with the organization a little bit. Uh, having been an English teacher, they asked me to do book talks. They sponsor certain books and programs in the course of the year. And I was fine with going around and giving talks. Okay, the next thing that changed it, and I think I explain all this in the preface to my um, first book, Escaping the Whale. Uh, both my books have a whale in the title, but they have nothing to do with marine biology. <laughs> it's Escaping the Whale and the Whale Surfaces, but it's all, you know, it's a metaphor. But anyway, so the second thing was, uh, we found out that there's a program, my, fa my family's from Vienna, we found out that there was a program called the Jewish Welcome Service of Vienna. And they, um, if they accept you, I mean, you have to send in the information about, you know, your parents. And if your parents fled the country because of the discrimination, because they were being hunted down, you qualify to come in in this program uh, where they, they sponsor you, they pay for your plane fare and hotel stay for a week, and they take you around the city and some tours and you have a lot of free time also. I had never been to Vienna. I had never been interested in going. I just had bad feelings about the city because of what my parents went through. And so I went, I decided, you know what, this is a good situation. I went with my sister and two cousins, four ladies. 
we went on this trip and it was terrific. It was great. There were about 30, 35 people in the group. Um, first of all, it was very weird, like to be able to go to the apartment buildings where both my parents grew up to see the streets that they talked about. Like, oh, this is the street where the Nazis chased my uncle down the street. You know, it's like, it's there. It's a real, you know, place. Um, it was very, very interesting and very inspiring. We were welcomed warmly by everyone. Everybody was nice, which made me sort of scared because I remember my mother saying, oh, everybody was nice until 1938 when Hitler took over, then they weren't nice, but they were nice till that day. But everybody, you know, we had a warm welcome. In fact, the president of Austria had us as guests at the Hotspur Castle, I'm mispronouncing it. It was the name of the castle where the monarchy used to live. It's gorgeous, of course. And he feted us and he gave a speech and I was crying. His speech was so moving. And he really was saying, I know as a country, as a city, we have a lot to atone for, but we want you to know this is also your home. In fact, shortly after that, they made this rule that we could apply for Austrian citizenship as a result of, you know, you know some countries are doing that, of our parents. Um, but that, it was right before that it was being discussed. And he just gave a very, very warm speech. It was right before the Jewish New Year. And he said in Hebrew, Happy New Year at the end. So it was really, he was very nice. And the ambassador, I'm trying to think, I think it was the Israeli ambassador to Austria was there. And she's a child of survivors. And she spoke and she said she felt completely comfortable there. Um, it was just really, really interesting. And I met all these other people. I mean, everybody has a story. Everybody who's a 2G, they, whenever their parents went through, it's all different. So when I met all these people, I said, you know, these people would read my book. <laughs> I just felt like this, you know, it isn't maybe a tremendous audience, but it's an audience. So when I got back, just uh, serendipitously, I met someone who had published a memoir with um, a company that specializes in Holocaust memoirs. And I said, so do you think she would be interested in a work of fiction? She said, well, she usually does memoirs, but you never know. And I contacted her and she liked my book a lot. She said she wanted to publish it. She just wanted to warn me. It's not going to sell as well as memoirs. I said, fine. <laughs> I just want to get it out there. You know, I mean, I'll do whatever I can to spread the word You know, until I'm sick of it. And then I'll stop. And um, she published it. And then uh, in the course of it came out April 2020, which was the beginning of the COVID lockdown. So right away I said, oh, great. I can't go around to libraries and bookstores and all that, which, I mean, I'm kind of shy with in-person things anyway. I wasn't, but I figured I was going to do it. Absolutely. But it turns out it worked out better because on Zoom, yes. I spoke to groups all over the country. Mm -hmm. And one of the couples that I met on this Vienna trip live in Australia they came to one of my talks, you know, they woke up in the middle of the night to come, you know. Um, so, and, and again, I, you know, I spread the word about it to them and people did respond. They bought the book and they have been so supportive and, and just loved it. Um, and so many people said to me, oh, I can relate to this, definitely relate to it. Um, and non-Jewish people too, who felt that it dealt with the immigrant experience as well. 
uh, I've had Chinese readers, Indian readers, I have had them contact me and say, this is so much like what we go through, just like the details are different. But being a child of immigrants who are trying to, they want their children to make it in America, but marry in their group, you know, like, like go this far, but not further. Um, so I had a lot of that. Um, also, it came to me, another fish, <laughs> in the process of writing it that um, I remembered very vividly going through um, the Iranian hostage crisis in 1980. I don't know why that just was such a major event for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided to set the story in 1980 when the hot, because I just remember the, the TVs were always on wherever you went. Everyone was like, be quiet, see what's going on with the hostages. Everyone was talking about it. Uh, I think maybe it was the first time that like my generation uh, saw the United States as vulnerable. Um, it was a really, tra- I don't know, traumatic, pivotal. I would say it was a pivotal event for a lot of, of people I know and for me. So I decided that that event somehow would trigger more, um, I wouldn't say mental illness, but would trigger a lot of problems in my main character because she already was dealing with inherited trauma. She already was dealing, she was the only female guidance counselor at the school where she worked. Mm -hmm. The school was having a huge increase in teenage pregnancies that she was left to handle. That was another issue that I came across in in my teaching days. Um, So I, I felt that that, the hostage crisis would feed into that you know, would exacerbate that problem for her. And she just goes on and on. She has a boyfriend. Everyone thinks he's Mr. Perfect. She's not so happy with him, but she hangs in there um, because if everyone says he's the one and you should get married, then, you know, who is she to know any better, right? So she's got a lot of issues and she starts imagining there are demons in her closet. Um, I mean, I had an aunt who was schizophrenic, so I know what can happen. Um, I mean, there were just all kinds of things that her imaginings were going on. And she hit, she tried to conceal it because she she knew it wasn't normal, but things got worse and worse for her. And um, things that the teenagers were going through, you know, the the pregnancies, the the promiscuity for some of them, uh, cutting was a big issue, teen suicide came up. So all those things actually she kind of became a teenager again, even though she was in her late 20s in this first book. And she kind of went through a lot of that stuff until she just reached a breaking point and she felt that was it, she couldn't go on anymore. And the one thing she always thought she would never do, she realizes she has to get help. Um, So I felt that the message was gonna be that you can't do this alone and it's a serious problem. Now, in the course of that year, when I was doing all these Zoom talks for various organizations and book clubs, um, people were questioning me about my protagonist's childhood and background. And finally, a few of them said, why don't you write a prequel? I said, hmm, you know, I never thought of that, but maybe. I was stuck at home anyway with the lockdown. So I did write the prequel, which is The Whale Surfaces. And it was very interesting journey, I would say, to go back and try to imagine my protagonist in her early years. So Escaping the Whale begins when she's 28. In the prequel, I begin when she's 11. And it takes us till she's 22, graduating college. 
So there's six years in the middle to imagine, <laughs> but um, that's how I did it. And I felt, I hope this answers the questions of the, my readers who asked me, tell me you know, about her background. And I did draw, it's not an autobiography by any means, but I did draw on some personal experience, some experience with people that I know or that I've read about. And I've really researched inherited trauma. I've been speaking about that. There's a lot coming out about that now, uh, you know, new studies and blah, blah. Um, and recently, so yes, yeah, so after I did that, people, I got very good response to people. Yes, this answers the question. This could be combined into one book and blah, blah. Okay. Um, I set up a website, which I was told I had to do. I went on social media, which I was told I had to do, all the things I never wanted to do. And I started a blog. And at the beginning, I was blogging about issues that came up in the news or whatever that related to my um, to my book, you know, mental health issues or, you know, other things like that. Well, finally, I came up with the idea because a lot of people were contacting me after reading my blog or reading my book saying, you know, I'm also a child of survivors, but my, my experience was this way or that way, different, the same. I said, you know what? I'm going to start doing interviews for the blog with children of Holocaust survivors. So I put out a call on the social media that I never wanted to be on, and I got all these um, reactions, you know, so far. And it's, a, it's work because some people, I'll send out a questionnaire, some people just answer the questions. Some people answer the questions very vaguely. It's not enough. I have to get more from them. Some people just write up this story, just consider my questions in the background. And some people just say, I looked at your questions, but I want to talk to you. So we do it over the phone. And sometimes it's several steps. So far, I've posted 16 interviews. Um, and I'm still getting some more in. And it's true that everybody's story is remarkable in some way and unique in some way. There's like no exact, you know, everyone has a different story. And we're going by the, um, the Holocaust Museum in New York, and I'm sorry, in DC, their definition of a survivor. It used to be that right after the war, a lot of people felt a survivor is only someone who was in a concentration camp. You don't have a number on your arm. You can't say you're a survivor, which really was hard on people who, struggled in other ways, who were hidden children, for example, or who, um, like my parents fled across Europe, um, spent years, you know, trying to be a step ahead of the Nazis. My mother ended up in France for three years. Um, so, you know, th there were survivors too. It's a different experience. So we're using that definition, okay? And that's what the Phoenix Holocaust Association also uses. So anyone who qualifies as a child of survivors, if they contact me that they want to be interviewed, I will interview them. And the responses have been really interesting. People are finding this, their stories very interesting. It's sort of a combination of what their parents went through and how they feel it affected them and how they, you know, affected their growing up if they think inherited trauma played a role. One woman told a really amazing story dealing with, in a lot of people that inherit trauma, they go, I don't know if you call it that, a blah, blah, which I understand. But uh, this woman was actually a scientist and she said her daughter once 
she was maybe in her late 20s, whatever, or 30. She woke up screaming in the middle of the night, just screaming, un inconsolable. It's, and she starts telling her a story of something she went through, which she did not go through, but it was actually her, the grandmother's experience exactly. And she had never been told that. Wow. And she felt it. She said, it's not like I know it. I felt it in me that I went through this. So the mother said to me, no one can tell me there's no inherited trauma. I mean, somehow she absorbed this. So there's a lot of interesting, interesting things coming out. I had one man whose father was a Greek Jew. Most people don't know about that, about the Sephardic community. They think, well, the Jews came from Poland and Russia and Germany and Austria and Hungary, but it's a different culture. And they also were in concentration camps and um, it was a different experience for them too. And it's a different experience for the child. So I try to bring in things like, um, that I think can teach us a lot. For example, mythology, uh, the whole idea of the whale. I mean, I based it on the Jonah story, even though it's not, it's, it's actually mentioned briefly in the prequel. And the other thing it's maybe mentioned like in one line, but it's the metaphor of getting out of a tough situation. Okay. Trying to escape escaping the whale, the whale that's, that's uh, keeping you, you know, uh, per cap captive, almost like the Iranian uh, hostages. You're captive. How do you get out? How do you free yourself? How do you free your soul? So that was like my metaphor was the Jonah and the whale story. And when I started, and, and even in the prequel, the whale surfaces, that's when her problems are first surfacing, they're first uh, coming exposed. Um, and she knows something's wrong with her all along. She just can't, you know, doesn't know what to do about it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of guilt among two Gs because they feel like, oh, their parents have been through so much. I can't tell them I have problems. It's, you know, what, how can I give them more grief? You know, that kind of thing. There's resentment too, you know, like uh, you, you're not American. You're like my friend's parents, you know, there's all... A lot of stuff comes out, a lot of very, very interesting. It's been a fascinating journey. But anyway, when I started going into, you know, the metaphor of the Jonah and the whale story, I started looking into um, other mythologies because I, as an English major, I studied many mythologies and the importance of water and sea creatures in so many other mythologies. And it could well be that the Jonah story was a takeoff on some pagan myth that, you know, with a, a giant, because uh, it never says a whale, actually, it says a, a big fish. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of very similar stories. There's a, I think it was a Babylonian myth that I came across that was almost the same as the Jonah story, only at the end, the main character gets eternal life. That was the, the difference. Um, water represents traveling, moving, growth, life. I mean, the ancients didn't know about science, but they knew that water is life. And I mean, like the Odyssey, the whole thing of traveling on water means maturing. When you, when Jonah comes out of the whale, he's supposedly a more responsible person now. Um, so there's that whole idea of water and the importance of water in all religions. I mean, uh, what do you call it? baptism? You know, the Christianity, mikvah, the water shrine in the Hindu religion. So the, the importance of water and the the threat of a big sea creature 
is just something very constant. And I think, as Jung would say, I think it's part of our collective unconscious and, and, and it's there, that fear. Um, animals, uh, there's always a fascination with dangerous animals. Many ancient cultures, when they go hunting and kill an animal, they will eat the heart um, because it's taking in the strength of that animal, mm-hmm. you know, to, it's like we're, we're attracted and scared at the same time of them. So I tried to, you know, I wasn't even trying to do that actually, but when I started talking about the book and someone would bring that up, you know, then I went back and I see that a lot of that must have been in my head before. And when I set up my website, I picked three sources for quotes. One was, was the book of Jonah and the Bible. The other was from Jung, Carl Jung, and uh, from Moby Dick, even though, again, I didn't talk about Moby Dick, but every, a lot of people made that connection. Yeah. So I put in some quotes all sprinkled throughout the website to kind of inspire people. I don't know if it did. (laughs) So that's my story. And I got to tell you, I'm turning 73 in a few weeks. I have never been happier. I got this book out, which was in me. It was like germinating in me for my whole life. I got it out there. And the funny thing is, I think if it had been a success when I was younger, I don't think I could have handled it. I think I would have been terrified that people would read that book and say, you are really weird. What's wrong with you? You are crazy. This must be you. Because my protagonist really does have an almost breakdown. And now they can say whatever they want. I don't care. <laughs> um, some of me is in this. Some of me is more exaggerated, you know. But um, I feel like I've reached this point where I, you know, it happened when I was late, later in life, and it's perfect because I'm not worried about anything else. I can enjoy the, you know, the praise and the whatever happens. And if, you know, it's easy to be jealous of someone else, say, oh, how come they got that speaking engagement? Now it's like, okay, so what, you know? So I think, um, I think my happiness came at the right time. And I really have to say, I, I think this is like the best time of my life. I hope I'm not going to die tomorrow, but... <laughs> yeah, that you inherited as well, like the woman who screamed when she woke up, you inherited all this trauma from, you know, great, from your parents or from your grandmother, whatever it is, and this is where you could write about it? Uh, again, the word inherited is hard to pinpoint because it implies something biological. Mm-hmm. And there is this thing now, the uh, somatic um, experience where... Uh, They believe that there is actually a change of the DNA in some people. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it's, oh, it could be in some cases that it is biological, but I think by growing up with people that you know have gone through something horrible, it definitely affects you. Uh, It becomes part of you, part of your life. And um, I think... I had my character became sort of morbidly obsessed with like horrible things. And I think that can happen. Okay. Uh, I went through a short phase of that. Luckily I got past it, past it enough to write about it. That's why I think the book in a way was a kind of exorcism for me. Um, but I got to put it out there and say that I think this is happening to people in all situations. Um, there's some inherited trauma. I mean, people who, uh, I had an interview with someone on a podcast where she had been a, a victim of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And she feels like, you know, when she gets married and has kids, 
even though she hopes she has solved her problems, they may be traumatized by her own experience, even if she never talks about it. And sometimes even more when they don't talk about it because it comes out in other ways. I've had people tell me that their parents would not speak of it, um, but they found out some other way. Like, let's say they gave a testimony for, uh, you know, the Steven Spielberg uh, organization and they overheard it or they, you know, they listened in. Um, the extreme, there was a book that came out in the early 70s called Children, was it called? I think it was called Children of the Holocaust. It was a nonfiction account um, of where they interviewed different people who were, you know, two Gs. And the extremes were very interesting. You've got the one extreme of parents who lived it constantly. They talked about it constantly. Of course, the child absorbs that. that and, and never mixed in with Americans or anything like that. Then the other extreme people who denied it, it didn't happen. The, the total extreme of people who denied that they were Jewish. They told their kids that they're, they're Christian. And part of that was the fear that, oh yeah, they say in America, you're free and they're not gonna go after you for that, but who knows, maybe they will. You know, We thought we were safe and over there. So there are people who deny that they were Jewish and the kids find out. In fact, one of the women that I met in Vienna on that trip, she said she was raised as a Christian and on her deathbed, her mother told her, you know, that we were Jewish. I just didn't want to burden you with that, you know. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I said to her, did you feel resentful? She said, no, not really. She accepted it. And I asked her, did you, because I know of someone else where the mother, the parents did that and they cut them off from the family. They said, we have no family. So they never met this family that they had till after they you know, found out. But this woman said, we always visited cousins and aunts and uncles, and they were all Jewish. I said, didn't you wonder how come they were and you weren't? Because, you know, I didn't. <laughs> oh. You accept sometimes what they tell you. And, you know, you so that's the other extreme. And, you know, you find out even people, Jews who, who immigrated from the Inquisition, 1492, they're in, you know, in Spain and Portugal and I'm sorry, not Spain, they're in Brazil and South America, New Mexico, um, and they were raised Catholic and they don't know until they're like, someone comes visiting who's Jewish. And I've heard this so many times, they'll say, you know, um, I have this book that was handed down. The family always hid it, but it was handed down from like my great, great grandparents. Could you take a look at it? And it's a Jewish book, they were Jewish. And they'll say, well, really? And some of them then get interested. They want to learn. They might even convert. And some just accepted, like, okay, so we were, you know, down the line, we were Jews, but now we're Catholic. Um, so there is that extreme, that fear. People don't, who don't live with that fear, it's hard to relate to that, you know? Actually, this, the country of Spain, they're offering citizenship to all of those who actually were uh, pushed away yeah. from Spain in, in 1492. and. Yeah the certain names because Sephardic Jews, certain names were suggested to be able to do the, to apply for the citizenship. And my oh. parents did get the citizenship. Oh, okay. Now they could apply for us and we could apply for our kids. So eventually yes. we're going to do, but yes, I, I could imagine on how much of a struggle people had to hide their identity in oh. the world war two. And actually there was a story about a young kid. I don't know if you heard about it, um, he was like nine years old and he remembered everything about even the name of people in his platoon in the 1940s. And he was able to say the name and he even was able to remember 
where the plane crashed. It was a pilot for World yeah. War II. And it was kind of, I don't know the, how they could explain it, but it seems like it was a reincarnation of some sort of yeah. that person who passed during World War II and reincarnated into that nine-year-old boy in, in the year 2000 or whatever it is. Wow. So he was able to say the name of the people who was with him, the, elder, the, the pilot in his platoon, it was unbelievable. So it, it does, it is somewhat biological, but also to a certain extent, it can be a certain type of reincarnation. There is so much spiritual and mystical stuff out there that we don't understand. Yes. And, you know, it's quite fascinating, but I agree. Are you from Spain or France? No, I am. I'm in from actually Morocco. Oh, Morocco, okay. Yeah, um, and uh, Casablanca, and then I moved to Montreal, Canada, and uh-huh. then, uh, I travel like in uh, the U.S. and all. But yeah, I am originally Jewish, uh, Sephardic, so my parents continue with the tradition and all. Um, we don't have any family member, if I'm aware of, that actually are Holocaust survivors. Um, but I know a lot of people that uh, that are friends of mine that their great grandparents were from Auschwitz. So yeah. it's, uh, it, it was pretty traumatic, especially all the stories that they heard and all, but they don't really, they, they, they don't wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh my God, I remember those uh, memories and all. Yeah. I, I don't know if, how much of people do remember. Oh, you should, a lot of my interviews, they say that uh, one of the parents would wake up screaming during the night. They would never have anybody sleep over because they were so embarrassed that the mother was like screaming during the night. Um, some of them would not, uh, like when a siren sounded outside, they would freak. Uh, the, a lot of people won't go near a German Shepherd. Oh, okay. Yeah, they could love dogs, but not a German Shepherd. They'll cross the street. Okay. So it's, it, it takes, it sort of locks itself, certain ideas into your head, and uh, it doesn't let go. So my right. grandparents were in Casablanca. When they got out of France, they were in Casablanca. My mother was already in the States and she, they had to figure out how to find where they were. But, um, but you know, the good thing is that uh, uh, King Hassan, if I'm not mistaken, did tell Hitler not to take any of the Jews. And he protected the Jews from the, you know, from him coming to every country and trying to, uh, yeah. to over. So that, you know, we always are very fortunate that he was able to protect them and he was able to go to war. And then, and then I think Hitler, for what my parents told me, he said, there's no point for us to waste time. Let's move and continue forward. So he didn't touch Morocco. Yeah, that's great. You know, there's some places, one of the islands in Greece, the archbishop, and in Athens also, he wouldn't, uh, he told all his priests to, you know, hide the Jews, to give them false baptism certificates. Um, a couple of countries, they tried to do the right thing. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> And I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that the, the country of Austria, which was actually German-based at that time. They, that was the first, yeah. They were able to kind of like, now they feel they have to atone by the, you know, for their mis- Even Germany, even the chancellor, she feels yeah. extremely guilty from the ancestors who've done all that and who were able to, uh, to create so much of this genocide that they've uh, conducted. So it's, at least they're aware. They, I mean, of course, yeah. not blame them from the behavior of their past, etc. Right. But at the same time, at least they are, they realize what they've done. Well, yes, Germany's actually been one of the better countries as far as education. And, and for them, it was, a, you know, you're starting with these kids who could go home and say to their parents and grandparents, where were you? It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't like the civil war in the United States. 
Um, some countries, you know, Poland and Romania, I mean, they just are not there yet. Um, even France now, it's a tough, you know, a lot of the Jews are leaving. They're not staying there. It's just a very volatile time, I think, right now. I agree. And where can people find your book, uh, uh, Ruth? Okay. It's sold on Amazon. It's sold through barnesandnoble.com. I was told it's also sold uh, online through Target and Walmart. Oh, um, I haven't seen that, but I've been told. But um, yes, and uh, it's Escaping the Whale and the Whale Surfaces. And I have a website, Ruth's Whale, one word, dot com. <laughs> so you can, you know, check me out and contact me. I love when people contact me and I have, you know, conversations about whatever, you know, the book or things relating to the book. Uh, it's been fascinating. I've just met some really, really interesting people. Beautiful. Well, Ruth, that is all the time that we have for today's podcast. And I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. And thank you for participating and inspiring our many listeners with your incredible story. Now, we hope that you've all enjoyed today's episode. And I'm also very excited about the many upcoming guests that we have scheduled for season nine of the Happiness Journey podcast filled with inspirational stories, just like the one that you listened to today. Now, here are some concluding words of wisdom. Mark Twain once stated, stay away from those people who try to disparage your ambitions. Small mind will always do that, but great minds will give you a feeling that you could become great too. He does make a great point. You see, small minds project their limiting beliefs about themselves onto you as they're incapable to unleash their full potential. They only look at one mile ahead in their lives as ambitious minds look into a decade ahead. You can blame them for a lack of belief as it may be a result of their direct environment. It is possible that they went through some traumatic experiences in life that deterred them from seeing the bigger picture. They can't allow themselves to look at success the same way that ambitious minds do. Because of that, they prefer attracting misery in their lives and add everyone they know into that mix. Hence, they will do whatever they can do to crash your dreams they don't want to be left alone in their miserable hole they call life. There is no reason to argue with them as they live in their own world and just should not be disturbed. All you can do is nod politely and move on with your dreams. Staying away from that toxic mentality will be one of the best approach you can take in your life. Follow your dreams and succeed. My name is Dr. Dan Emzalak, and you may all keep pursuing your amazing journey in life.